I would guess that something in the neighborhood of half the people I work with show some form of brain injury when I actually look at their brain. It's when that, that signaling, the insulin signaling fails, that's when all the really severe problems happen. But also simply, you know, oxidizing sugars. You can think of AGEs or glycation as, as, as sugar that is rusting other features in your body, other cells, other tissues. Uh, and the other issue is that dietary sugars produce a form of, of um, lipids in the bloodstream that lasts for over a week. So you can't change on a dime. You know, just like the cells in the body become insulin resistant and stop taking in sugar properly, the exact same thing happens with neurons. And so the sort of early stage of cognitive impairment with regards to aging is often this we call MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And this basically is pre-Alzheimer's. That top-down failure we call ADHD when it's extreme or distractibility or impulsivity when it's not extreme is largely a function of excess theta brain waves. But okay. alpha is not a very magical frequency otherwise. You don't want to okay. enhance alpha. Excess alpha is inattentive ADHD, or what we, what we used to call ADD, is an eyes open alpha state. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com or keep listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Brian Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Ryan Muncy is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncy is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncy's an innovator. All right, happy Thursday, all you Optimal Performers. Welcome to another episode of the OPP. Thanks for spending some time with us today, and also want to welcome in our guest, Dr. Andrew Hill. Uh, Andrew, thanks for hanging out with us today as well. Ah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate it. So for you guys listening, uh, Dr. Hill is one of the top peak performance coaches in the country. He has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology. He continues to do research uh, on attention and cognitive performance, which is one of the things that... Uh, we're going to really get in depth on uh, in today's episode. Um, Dr. Hill is also the founder of Peak Brain Institute, and they are doing some really cool things right now uh, that I really want to get Dr. Hill to talk about uh, with us today. Um, you may have heard Dr. Hill on several other podcasts. He's been on Joe Rogan. Uh, he's a lecturer at UCLA, teaches courses in <coughs> psychology, neuroscience, and gerontology. So a lot that we can dive into today here on the OPP. Uh, before we do that, a couple of housekeeping notes for you guys listening. Number one, make sure you go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the blog post that has the video version of this show, as well as all of the links and resources. I'm sure that uh, a cognitive neuroscientist like Dr. Hill <laughs> is going to give us lots of studies that we can follow up on or That's right. tons of different things that we'll have. Uh, anything that you guys want to go down the rabbit hole further with, we will have links uh, on that blog post for you. Uh, also, make sure you go to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you like the show. Uh, we will read your reviews on the air. And if we do, we will hook you up with free product. So, Life Overload, whoever you are, 
shoot me an email, ryan at naturalstacks.com, because I'm about to read your review. Ryan, your podcast is awesome. You've opened my eyes to a better living through science. I'm a fireman and a student working towards my master's degree. Recently introduced to your show through another podcast, bought a few of your products in an attempt to get me through the fog the day after I'd been at work. We've been up all night on 911 responses. The results have been amazing. Um, there's more to this. I'm skimming through it. Your podcast helped me introduce to even more ways to help biohack life for a better living. Please keep up the research and keep bringing us more awesome products. So Life Overload, uh, thank you for uh, what you do uh, as a fireman to help people, and we appreciate the support. So shoot me an email, and we'll get you some uh, goodies. For the rest of you guys listening, please share the OPP with your friends and family. Anybody you know who would enjoy and or benefit from the things that we're talking about here, um, you know, like Dr. Hill, we are trying to give you the tools that you need to, um, to help optimize your life in, in all the different ways that we can do that. So uh, again, think of the people you know in your life and, and share the OPP with them so that they can get the same benefits that you get from listening to the show. All right, public service announcement is over. Dr. Hill, uh, what's going on over at Peak Brain Institute? I have seen this pop up. It's all over my newsfeed. I, I follow a couple okay. of people on Instagram who uh, have be, been posting recently. It's been on Twitter. Uh, Brian McKenzie is somebody that I follow yep. a lot, and, and he's doing some work with you. Uh, tell us what Peak Brain Institute is and what's going on over there. Yeah, so essentially, you know, a lot of people in the health and wellness uh, space, you know, individual athletes as well as professionals, we're all focused on uh, exercising the body and, and, and maximizing performance in the body. Uh, what Peak Brain is is really the same thing, but focused on the brain. So a lot of what we do at Peak Brain is identify individual brain resources as well as sort of limits or challenges you're working with. And then uh, we, we do that via what we call brain mapping or quantitative EEG. We, we use uh, brainwave analysis for looking at performance. And then from there, we exercise your brain essentially to change your uh, physiology. And we have pretty good results. We, we mostly use a technique called neurofeedback, which is biofeedback on brainwaves. Um, neurofeedback can also be used to train other things besides brainwaves. We do something called HEG, which is infrared blood flow training as well. But yeah, folks like Brian and other uh, sort of elite athletes that are working with us are coming in and uh, exercising certain frequencies in their brain, which improve uh, attention, alertness, depth of sleep, calm focus, uh, a whole bunch of other things. And then we also work with people that have specific deficits as well. So aside from the elite athlete population, we also work with people with you know, ADHD and brain injuries and anxiety and OCD and other kind of you know, brains that have gotten out of control, so to speak. Um, now, not that elite athletes have perfect brains. In fact, most of these guys I'm working with, we usually see head injuries, like a history of concussions. When someone's been in a high contact sport or, you know, a surfer or a football player or, you know, even just a high school athlete, um, we usually see brain damage, uh, you know, concussion evidence and things that would normally get in your way moment to moment. Um, the most common thing that happens after you've received a lot of wear and tear on your brain, you know, for this elite athlete type, which is probably a lot of your listeners too, Ryan. Um, these elite athletes often have a rough and tumble life and end up with, you know, little bits of scar tissue essentially throughout the brain. And how that manifests when I look at a brain map is excess delta brain waves. So delta is a, a useful brain wave. In fact, all brain waves are there for a reason. 
Um, we don't make a lot of delta when we're wide awake. We make a lot of delta when we're deeply asleep and not dreaming. So when I do a brain map on somebody and I see a lot of eyes open, awake delta, usually we think of that as like a little spot of dysregulated brain where it's stuck in this really slow mode. And that often comes up from things like uh, head injuries, mild concussions, traumatic brain injuries, et cetera. And symptomatically how that manifests for people is usually um, not severely. When it's been you know, a lifelong of rough and tumble, you know, being an athlete, being a soldier, being a you know, kid in a rough neighborhood growing up, all these things produce wear and tear. Um, they don't produce any focal problems specifically for most people. Usually they produce sort of a cognitive fatigue, meaning that you're fine for the first half of the day, but then you know, early afternoon, you're kind of done. Not that you're physically tired, but the idea of making more decisions, staying engaged with things you have to work on, that cognitive fatigue piece really shows up when your energy, your, 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 your sleep-wake cycle and other things aren't regulated well. And usually with some concussion damage, we see that kind of problem. And so a lot of these really high performers I'm working with are really high performers for the first like half or two-thirds of the day. And then they kind of fall over into some limits uh, you know, because of a rough and tumble life, essentially. No, not, not speaking specifically about any one person. I wouldn't uh, do that on air right. uh, unless, unless they were on air with me. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's really quite common. I, I would guess that something in the neighborhood of half the people I work with show some form of brain injury when I actually look at their brain. And, you know, some of these folks are serious athletes or soccer players or football players or MMA fighters. And we kind of know why there's damage. But other folks come in, you know, adults with ADHD or sleep issues without any documented history of head injury, no real active sports, you know, history. And we still see sort of wear and tear markers on the brain. So these things can show up without any severe injury for some folks. So are you able to trace those back and figure out why that's showing up? Yes, yeah, sometimes we are. Um, it's not so much that I'm able to definitively say, aha, this, this pattern here is from this instant you had in your life. In fact, it, not only can I not really tell when damage showed up, but I don't really care for the most part why a pattern's showing up. The, the brain mapping process is getting a snapshot of your brain, and brains change somewhat slowly. So the brain that uh, I, I would gather on you today and one that I would gather on you maybe tomorrow or a year from now would actually be pretty much identical. So uh, you don't really have uh, um, a, a rapidly moving brain, so to speak. Um, the, the kinds of patterns that show up are you know, regulatory patterns that suggest traits, not sort of moment-to-moment states. And so, um, yeah, sometimes I'll say, oh, you know, there's a, there's a problem in the left front and a problem on the right rear, and that looks like a coup contra coup injury, your brain bouncing around inside your skull. And sometimes people say, oh, yeah, definitely I had an impact right here, and it was from a car accident or a sporting injury or something, and they can tell me exactly why we're seeing the little stripe of damage. Other folks can't, and it's not really relevant if we can you know, validate it as actual injury. What really matters is the symptoms somebody's experiencing, fatigue, problems focusing, problems sleeping, um, and then working on it. So it doesn't really matter if we can say, aha, brain damage. If we see dysregulated tissue, we, our, our goal is about fixing it, not about trying to determine you know, why it's there per se. Right. It's a little less relevant. Um, you know, what, what people care about is their performance, not necessarily you know, which football injury or car accident over the past 20 years produced some damage. So. Right. Well, so you said the magic word, you know, people care about performance. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about 
you know, um, maintaining focus through the day, you know, having that incredible, sharp, focused mind that we all want, being able to retain, recall information, you know, what what are some things that that go into enabling that peak performance? Uh, What are some things that, you know, prevent it? How can we optimize that? Yeah, I would say there's a few things. Um, one is a you know sort of foundational uh, things you need in place. Um, you need to be relatively well rested. Um, sleep, uh, and not just getting enough hours of sleep, but moving through the stages of sleep, going into deep sleep, which is uh, slow wave or restorative sort of non-dreaming sleep, um, going into REM, uh, moving easily into sleep at the beginning of the night, uh, moving out of sleep in the morning. Those things are all really important. Uh, if you can do the sleeping thing uh, skillfully and you're, you're meeting your, your nutrition needs pretty well, then I would say from there, from that platform or that foundation, then you can build a, additional performance. Um, and the nutrition piece, uh, from a brain health point of view, this is not going to be a surprise to any of your listeners, but from a brain health point of view, the, the, the watchword should be zero starch and sugar and large amounts of fat. You know, fat is, the, is brain healthy, essentially. So I actually have this as like a side note to where if, uh-huh. it, if it came up or if we had time to, to talk about it, but since you brought it up, I mean, and you just said zero starch, zero sugar, does that mean that you would recommend a ketogenic type diet for most people? Yeah, I do actually. And, and I, I literally qualify that. I don't think that being in ketosis is important for the benefits of all of these low carb diets. I think actually having, you know, uh, a ketone stick turn color when you pee on it is not the goal. The goal is essentially to create insulin sensitivity or maximize insulin sensitivity, meaning that your system needs to swing wildly when it sees sugar put in your mouth or starch. Um, it's when that, that signaling, the insulin signaling fails, that's when all the really severe problems happen. Um, also, the sugar itself acts like an oxidizer in many tissues and destroys tissues. So that's a problem. But the big issues in terms of brain health are not so much about the immediate you know, oxidized sugar. It's about the long-term inflammation, the long-term right. damage you do for having high sugar. And then neurons become insulin resistant. And then that's one of the things that leads to things like uh, Alzheimer's and other, you know, cognitive impairments. So, so let's go down that road a little bit more. I mean, we, we've talked yeah. and, and people hear, you know, kind of ad nauseum, you know, the, the metabolic effects of, of carbohydrates and sugar. But, yep. but what we don't often hear about is you know, the, the neurological effect. So can you elaborate on what's going on, you know, with, with the CNS and and those neurons when, when sugar is either acutely or chronically, you know, elevated? Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a gerontologist, which means I study aging and I teach aging. And if you think about the, the big diseases of aging, um, cancer, diabetes, uh, and then the degenerative brain diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, that whole cluster of things uh, doesn't start when you're old. It starts when you're young. Um, and it appears like all of those things are mediated by sugar. Um, I already mentioned that insulin, uh, sorry, neurons in the brain become insulin resistant when sugar is high for too long. Talk That's about that fir- because I, I yeah. didn't realize that, that neurons you know, were, could be sensitive or resistant to yeah. insulin. Yeah. Neurons, just like any other cell, hear the signal of insulin to open up their sort of, you know, mouths and suck in blood sugar, glucose. And neurons tune sort of ha- themselves to the insulin range. So when insulin is ranging all over the place, cells become less sensitive to it. When insulin is ranging uh, in, a, in, a, in a much sort of narrower range, 
cells listen harder to the range, to, this, to the insulin signal. Mm-hmm. So in something like Alzheimer's, what happens is you have chronic high blood sugar, and just like the cells in the body become insulin resistant and stop taking in sugar properly, the exact same thing happens with neurons. And so the sort of early stage of cognitive impairment with regards to aging is often this we call MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And this basically is pre-Alzheimer's. And there's a lot of evidence that this is a, this is a stage where uh, in the early Alzheimer's symptoms, the neurons have sort of forgotten how to take in fuel. And so now they're semi-starving all the time and memory's having an issue, concentration's having an issue. Um, and if somebody's got a Western diet, what they're doing when they feel foggy or hungry or tired is just eat more starch, which doesn't make the cells suck up fuel. It actually makes them more insulin resistant. So it's right. this really vicious cycle. Right. Um, there is a study uh, out recently out of UCLA that suggests that um, – no, let me back up. There's a scientist who basically said – he threw up his hands and said, okay, all these individual interventions we're working on for Alzheimer's, they've all shown promise in animal models, but when we – dig deep into the research, they often they, they fail to mm-hmm. translate to humans or the, the findings that show up in animals aren't quite as robust when they're looked at larger you know, uh, animal populations and things. And so this, this one scientist decided instead of just discreetly examining specific biochemical, if you will, interventions, he was going to do something different and throw every behavioral intervention possible at every client that, that, or research subject. So I think he recruited like 17 people who had significant Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. took them off all their meds, and threw every single behavioral intervention at them. And these included low-carb, high-fat diets, exercise, activity, yoga, et cetera. And most of the people that had symptomatic Alzheimer's reduced symptoms. Now, this is the first time we've actually seen a symptom-reducing uh, behavioral intervention carried out on this level. Now, what this means is... Um, the, 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 the neurons that were dying, if you will, becoming insulin resistant and shutting down over time, these neurons were reinvigorated, if you will, by the behavioral interventions. And it does look like that, um, this is some other related studies that dietary MCT, dietary medium chain triglycerides Mm -hmm. appear to be able to be used by these neurons even after they're insulin resistant. And what that means is with mild Alzheimer's, there may be an opportunity to reduce it from developing further and to actually reverse symptoms by cutting out all starches and sugars and giving people really high fat and medium chain triglyceride rich diets or even getting supplemental triglycerides. Yeah. And I was going to say, I I know that I've seen a study maybe a few years ago where even a dose of uh, a single tablespoon of coconut oil, uh, Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's patients were showing improved cognitive benefit just with yeah. that single dose, is that the same study, or are you mentioning one that's It's, it's more a different. Recent? This is a different study. There's, there's okay. some more recent studies, but yes, um, that study that, that that you're describing was one of the things that led into this approach on, hey, let's give MCT, you know, right. supplemental capsule MCT, and see what happens. What was um, the dose in the the newer MCT study? Do you know? Um, it was a few hundred milligrams. It wasn't massive, and okay. it was refined MCTs in capsule format. It wasn't like okay. coconut oil, right? I, I'm not sure there's any benefit for going after product-based MCT, you know, refined MCTs, mm-hmm. versus simply slathering coconut oil in, in, in all your food and just taking it straight. Okay. I think coconut oil is a really good quality MCT as long as you get sort of cold-pressed, you know, right. uh, coconut oil as opposed to refined. Right. Um, and, you know, as long as you don't mind the coconut flavor, 
you're getting other things in coconut oil you would yeah. not get in MCT, like uh, lauric acid. Monolaurin right. is a, uh, a fatty acid that is naturally occurring in mother's breast milk. Mm. And uh, when a baby's born, the first six months or so of their life, they don't have an immune system really. They aren't, they aren't really producing their own immune cells. And so for those first six months, they're sort of using uh, immune cells that were produced in utero from their mother, and they're gradually bringing their own immune system online and learning to produce T cells and everything else. Mm -hmm. And in that intermediate gap, that six to nine month or so gap, um, as their, and if you will, built-in immune stuff is dropping from uh, you know, prenatal and the, and the early natal immune system is building up, in that gap, what the babies are relying on for immune support is monolaurin or lauric acid, which is what's found in uh, breast milk. And one of the only dietary forms of lauric acid is coconut oil. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, it's actually better to go after the, the cold-pressed, you know, raw coconut oil than it is to go after an MCT product at like, you know, uh, a workout shop or something. I think you're actually missing some of the benefits as long as you can tolerate the, the, the coconut flavor. Not everyone can, right? Yeah, so. Right. Well, and I know there's also a, another recent study going back to um, the topic of, of insulin resistance and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. uh, this one, maybe a couple of weeks uh, ago, mm -hmm. this came out where something like 50% of the U.S. now is considered insulin resistant and yep. that there is a link to... Um, uh, you know, there, there, there's a link between insulin resistance and Alzheimer's. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, w one of the big problems with this research or the, well, one of the issues uh, uh, in terms of why we're only discovering this now is for the past 30 or 40 years, I mean, we've been doing research on Alzheimer's all along. It's not mm -hmm. like some new, new research focus. But only in the past few years have we not been excluding client, uh, sorry, research subjects who are diabetic. So up until the past few years, when you screen people in for your study who were uh, Alzheimer's, you eliminated anyone with a blood sugar issue, which gets rid of all the active sort of development Alzheimer's cases in some way. Right. And so, you, so you're actually missing a lot of the core, I think, uh, ideology of the disorder. And that's, in, that's of course in, in Alzheimer's. Um, let me say one more thing. It's, it's not so much about insulin resistance, not only about insulin resistance, it's also about glycation. This is the other big issue mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. aging, of course. Mm -hmm. So, um, AGEs, right? We've talked AGEs, about these yeah, before. Advanced yeah. glycation end products, mm -hmm. but also simply, you know, oxidizing sugars. You can think of AGEs right. or glycation as, as, as sugar that is rusting other features in your body, other cells, other tissues, uh, fat, protein, and other carbohydrates. Well, anytime um, we talk to like uh, longevity experts or aging yeah. experts, we hear the two things that we want to avoid as much as possible are, are uh, inflammation and oxidative stress. And yes. this is glycation falls under that. Under both, both exactly. but, yeah. but yeah, yeah, oxidative stress. Yeah, definitely special. oxidative stress, and it also causes inflammation. I mean, right. glycation is one of the core uh, um, processes involved in both arteriosclerosis and atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. One of those is normal aging, you know, hardening of the arteries. One of those is pathological aging, mm -hmm. which is that blockage of the arteries. Mm -hmm. But they're both mediated by sugar and inflammation to some extent. Now, when that sugar gets into the brain, I've already mentioned uh, Alzheimer's and insulin resistance. But Parkinson's, you know, Parkinson's has as one of its features a loss of dopamine cells. And that's why we develop movement issues and uh, other learning issues with Parkinson's. But one of the features that's often present in Parkinson's is called Lewy bodies, L-E-W-Y. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's actually a form of Parkinson's called Lewy body dementia or Lewy body disorder or Lewy body disease. 
that's considered a Parkinsonian-like uh, uh, problem. And it's often uh, sort of seen as Parkinson's by doctors. But if you look in the brain, you see these little tiny areas of amyloid. So amyloid is a protein that fails or gets nasty in Alzheimer's. It's also present in many forms of Parkinson's. And the amyloid bundles into these things called Lewy bodies, mm -hmm. these little clusters of amyloid. Now, the edges of the Lewy bodies are incredibly densely glycated amyloid. And it turns out the glycated amyloid is profoundly more damaging to the surrounding brain tissue than amyloid is by itself. I mean, we all make amyloid. Right. It's not a big deal. When it builds up, it's a problem. It, it can destroy cells. When it's glycated, it's much, much worse. So it looks like all of the Parkinsonian sort of cell cluster nonsense is coming from glycated amyloid. And so again, sugar-driven. So top tips to avoid that amyloid buildup and glycation is reducing the amount of sugar that we ingest and burn over a lifetime. Yes, yes. and not, not only lifetime, but, but, but think about it at everyone's sitting. Right. You know, we have insulin responses so that we don't have sugar floating around in our tissue. Sugar itself, glucose, is damaging to small tissues. And so this is why you know, people that are diabetic lose their vision because mm -hmm. the capillaries in the retina fail mm -hmm. or lose their, 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 their extremities because those fine capillaries fail because of the high sugar. Right. Um, whenever you eat sugar, the human body tries to store it. And if you are an athlete and you have a great you know, energy system, then you put that first into your muscles in the form of uh, uh, glycogen. Mm -hmm. And then it only goes into triglycerides in the bloodstream and then adipose and other you know problematic storage forms. And you said when we eat sugar, but really that's when we eat any carbohydrate because they're all yeah, broken starch. down. They're all I'm broken basically into glucose. equating the two. Okay. Yeah. So okay. sugar, you know, all, I'm basically calling all starch sugar. Right. Essentially. Here. Right. Okay. Um, so then, you know, we hear so much about like that, that old mentality of, you know, our, our brain needs glucose to function. And, you yep. know, you see like with the, with the keto popularity rise in the last, uh, I don't know, let's call it six to 12 months. We see these, there, and there's a company that makes a shirt specifically that says keto or uh, what is it? ketones are greater than glucose. Mm -hmm. um, I guess in in a in as brief a statement as possible, how would you explain to somebody who holds on to that dogma that you know our brain needs glucose? Well, I mean, I, I think our brain does need glucose, but it can also manage on ketones just fine, and it can manufacture glucose out of other things sometimes. So. Um, it's not so much about, the, about how the brain uses the fuel source because the body will do whatever it can to feed the brain first. Right. I mean, the brain has a very narrow range of glucose, oxygen, and other, and other fuels. And if that drops a little bit, you pass out, you have issues. So the, the body will do whatever it can to produce the right forms of fuel for the brain. The trick is what you put in your mouth will bias your system towards gluconeogenesis, so you know, glucose-driven stuff versus versus ketones. If you activate the Krebs cycle with lots of carbohydrates, your body's very bad at doing keto-based uh, metabolic processes. If you do lots of high fats and very, very low sugars, your body gets less good at handling huge surges of carbohydrate. You know, th those are sort of different paths in metabolic efficiency. And it takes some time to train your body to get good at um, one or the other. And the other issue is that dietary sugars produce a form of, of um, lipids in the bloodstream that lasts for over a week. So you can't change on a dime. You know, if you're eating sugar, 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 or, you know, pizza, 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 um, every time you eat carbohydrates, your liver produces a form of cholesterol called uh, VLDL, very low density lipoprotein. 
for those folks who are in the know about cholesterol, there's uh, several forms, HDL, LDL, and VLDL are the ones we really know about. And HDL is the good cholesterol. LDL has gotten a bad rap as the bad cholesterol. But it turns out the really bad cholesterol is actually VLDL, the very tiny particle size, and these big amorphous molecules of the lipoprotein. And VLDL is what gets oxidized and causes processes like arteriosclerosis and atherosclerosis. Eating saturated fat or meat or other fat forms does not raise, you know, even eating cholesterol does not raise blood or serum cholesterol for VLDL. It raises HDL mostly. The only thing that produces VLDL appears to be dietary sugar. So if you eat a big fat hamburger or something, that saturated fat raises your HDL and LDL a little bit for about a day. Those molecules are produced and they last for about a day until they're reclaimed. But if you eat sugar or starch, the VLDL that's created by your liver lasts for seven days. So you have this whole like week-long process of increased you know, soft cholesterol molecules, increased oxidation, inflammation, et cetera, from one meal, a whole week-long cascade of inflammatory processes and bad lipid uh, regimen, so to speak. So it's not so much about the fats you eat. It's really all about the dietary sugars and starches in my per- my, from my perspective. Okay. So fascinating stuff there on the nutritional side of this. And we got into that because you were mentioning the, the foundation stuff, you know, sleep and nutrition that, yeah. that goes into uh, brain performance. So, so if we can, let's, let's circle back to increasing focus and, and mental performance. What yeah. else have you got for us there? So you, you have to think about the brain um, as a ridiculously complicated machine. I mean, we, we don't really understand it even now. That's the dirty little secret of neuroscientists is we understand pieces, but not the whole thing at all. Right. I mean, it's ridiculously complex. You know, more, more cells in the brain than there are stars in the sky. There may be more cells in the brain than galaxies in the universe. It's a ridiculously complicated uh, bit of tissue. But what we do know is that it's modular. So different areas of the brain are responsible for doing different things. Like the auditory system hears a sound and wants to turn and perceive that sound, or at least attentionally notice the sound. And the same thing's true of, you know, vision and other sensory processes and even internal thoughts. There's all these little modules doing specific things. And then sort of late in the process, the the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, stitches all that activity together to get things moving in one consistent direction. And just like the CEO of a company, the PFC of the brain does a lot of its job by saying, no, don't do this, don't do that, we're moving in this direction, let's make sure we're all you know, pulling the ship or, the, or driving the car in the same direction. And executive function failures are largely failures of that coordination. The, the prefrontal cortex isn't able to get things to, to happen, and then so the other modules you know, drive distractibility or impulsivity or other issues because they're trying to take control of the, the whole you know, creature. Yeah, I just, I was going to, you did say prefrontal cortex, but first time you said PFC, I just wanted PFC, to clarify yeah, that yeah. For, for listeners. Um, so, and you talked about this a little bit when you were on the Joe Rogan show, and that was something that I actually highlighted and, and wanted to, to get you to elaborate uh-huh. on for us. I think when you were on his show and you were talking about it, you, you spoke of what you called top down versus bottom yeah. up. Um, yeah. Can you talk about some of that for us? Yeah, that's sort of what I've, I've already started to mention about this modularity of the brain. So, um, our experience of having a mind is largely uh, probably cortical. And what I mean by that is it's probably coming from the top 
sort of bark of the brain, the, the top, you know, sulci and gyri, these, these wiggly areas that we, we look at and we think of as gray matter. That's largely what we think in and perceive in it looks like. And the deep structures in the brain are more automatic and they're more information flow. Um, so, when, so we have a module let's say back here whose job it is to process face expressions. And if that's tied into other modules well, when I look at you, I can tell that you're listening attentively and you have, you know, some emotional tone or whatever. And I process that just in our communication. But if that module wasn't working all that well, let's say I was a little bit uh, autistic or Asperger's, mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily be able to take my attention and pull that resource into the experience I'm having. It would, it would, have, it would still be running all by itself. And when it's running all by itself, it might actually grab my attention and make me a little bit um, unsure about how to process your face. So when these modules are running all by themselves, you often get uh, deficits because the, the whole thing can't be coordinated. Um, the, the obvious example of this is ADHD. So I did, I did mention this on, on Rogan's show. Um, ADHD is to some extent a bottom-up control and a failure of the top-down coordination of that prefrontal cortex. So, um, you know, ADHD folks often are uh, a little distractible. They're always looking around and changing gears and talking, talking, talking and moving, moving, moving. Um, a lot of that is because they are constantly in a reactive or responsive mode when something happens and they have to look at it or they have a thought and it has to come out their mouth. Um, there's, there's not the ability to, to sort of go, huh, it's what I'm about to say or do or think actually congruent with what I'm trying to do right this moment. So that's really the failure in executive function is the frontal lobe no longer coordinates all of the different modules that are more sort of bottom up. And so the top down control fails and we end up with a really erratic behavior because each module wants to exert its control. And this can happen in ADHD as well as things like anxiety. So, so having that understanding of what's going on, you guys have got to have some pretty cool ways of using what you're doing at Peak Brain to help folks increase their focus. And, and Absolutely. So, so let's hear it. Yeah, so, so after we assess your brain and figure out which brain patterns are operating for you, we also assess your attention sort of objectively on a behavioral task. Uh, so we get you to make mistakes by repeating, you know, pressing a button until the stimulus changes, then you make a mistake, and that's impulsivity. Um, but once we have a sense of how your brain works, we measure your brain waves moment to moment. Um, let me give you a specific example. That, that top-down failure we call ADHD when it's extreme or distractibility or impulsivity when it's not extreme is largely a function of excess theta brain waves. So theta brain waves um, are a brain uh, frequency that runs between four and about seven cycles per second. And theta is a really useful brain wave for certain things. When you're imagining things or having a memory or in that sort of creative, receptive mm -hmm. mode, mm -hmm. theta is really dominating and you're mm -hmm. pulling ideas out. It's generative and bubbly and very busy internally. Um, that's useful when you're trying to be creative or generative. But when you're trying to be sustained in your attention and not distracted, that's when theta gets in the way. And so when you see somebody who has high amounts of theta at baseline, you think of that as like the brakes being off. There's no, I call it inhibitory tone. You can't decide strategically how to act, every little bottom-up module pushes the ship around, and it's really a noisy, busy environment. And so when we see this, we measure theta moment-to-moment -moment through the scalp. This is, uh, neurofeedback's always non-invasive or usually non-invasive. We don't 
go into your brain. We don't zap your brain usually. Right. Um, so we measure those theta frequencies moment to moment, and they're not locked. They aren't some sort of static amount. They're always fluctuating up and down, up and down, up and down. And the way uh, neurofeedback or biofeedback on the brain works is whenever those brain waves trend in the quote unquote right direction, you make something happen out in the world, like make a music track swell in volume or make a movie screen get brighter mm -hmm. or a spaceship flies faster through an animation or something. And then the brain's changing very, very quickly. Uh, one thing about neurofeedback people often don't realize is the process is non-voluntary. What we're doing is measuring those fluctuations of EEG and when they fluctuate in the right direction, we go, good job, brain, by like making something happen more. Right. Spaceship flying faster, music getting louder. But the next moment, you know, half a second later, the brain moves in the wrong direction, the theta waves go back up. Yeah. And then we make the music go quiet or the spaceship stall out. And the next moment, the brain moves in the right direction and the spaceship resumes, music gets loud. Mm -hmm. And so over half an hour of training time, you may have hundreds of stops and start of stimuli mm -hmm. that resume whenever your brain happens to normally move in the right direction. And then the, the trick is we move the goalposts, we, we, we move what we reward over the half hour to keep gradually drift, dragging your brain in a specific direction. And then after a few days of that, your brain starts to move and you feel superhuman. I mean, uh, uh, you know, a few people, especially these elite athletes I'm working with, um, some of these folks feel better after a few days of training, feel more focused, more alert, more checked in, more in the zone than they've ever felt in their lives. And if somebody's got a deficit like ADHD, mm -hmm. um, this kind of approach means that two or three months in, there's no more ADHD. Right. You know, so if you've got a deficit, we eliminate it, but if you're a high performance you know, athlete, we just bring you up even further. Well, so, and I can see how that would be really beneficial for anyone in today's society as well, because regardless of you know being diagnosed ADHD or not we live in a world of of constant sensory bombardment and yeah. emails and twitter messages and facebook and you know you got to do this and you got to do that and, and and the more you know you're in this entrepreneurial space or or internet yeah. world or or whatever it is you do have this like where you live in this world where you have to react to so many different things and you could yeah you could unknowingly or unwittingly find yourself, you know, in more of that theta state in times where you don't want to be or, or don't need to be. So what are, aside from neurofeedback, are there other ways that, that our listeners can train their brain to move from, I'm assuming yeah. you're, you're trying to move from theta to what? No, beta. Yeah. Okay. Delta is not a good frequency to make a lot of when the eyes are open. It's a deep right, frequency. Right, right, right. Okay. You and alpha is an, alpha is an idling frequency. So we make alpha on the way into sleep and when we're gently relaxed, but okay. alpha is not a very magical frequency otherwise. You don't want to okay. enhance alpha. Excess alpha is inattentive ADHD or what we, what we used to call ADD is an eyes open alpha state. Okay. Uh, being stuck in neutral basically uh, is, is alpha. Um, but excess theta, yeah. So if you find your theta-beta ratio is too high, that means impulsivity. If your alpha to beta ratio is too high, that means inattention. And so if we see either of those things, we train down the excess theta or excess alpha and train up the beta. And the, pro the experience of that is feeling more and more crisp, more self-controlled, more alert, and, and sort of more resourced, having the ability to turn on your attention like a laser beam or a spotlight and, and really check in with what you're doing in a way that is 
potentially something you haven't experienced before, you know, the ability to sort of put mental blinders on and filter out things you don't want to actually experience. Um, so that really comes up for most people. About 90, 95% of people can have their attention resources or executive function dramatically improved with something like neurofeedback. Um, but you're right. There are some other ways you can manipulate these frequencies, you know, drop your, your theta and raise your beta. Mm-hmm. Um, nootropics do that. You know, typically the, the, the cholinergic class, meaning choline forms as well as the racetams, right. those seek to drop theta and bring up beta. Um, uh, meditation or mind, the... Uh, uh, nootropics and meditation can both be used to affect this theta as well. Okay. The, 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 the drawback is that nootropics are a transient or temporary intervention. They're probably not going to change your baseline. They might be great for support if you're a high-powered individual who needs to power out a few more hours of focus, but they're not going to leave you with a different brain over time. Uh, meditation will. You know, if you meditate for 20 minutes a day, over many, many years, you will develop a much more performant brain. And in fact, you know, as a gerontologist, I emphasize a lot of the work by uh, Lazar, L-A-Z-E-A-R. She's done several papers that show um, the normal age-related cognitive uh, impairments that happen, just you know, not pathological, but normal aging. A lot of that is driven by a loss of um, cortex, loss of cell bodies, in the lateral parts of the frontal lobe and also the insula cortex, which is on the, on the temples basically, which is body awareness and feeding. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other things here that are self-control as well as body awareness areas. And those become quite thin in elders who don't meditate. You know, normal aging means you might lose 10, 20, 25% of that cortex and your self-control, your body awareness, your ability to appreciate food, um, a few other things really degrade um, really north of 65 years old, unless you're a meditator. And then you're completely spared all of these age-related cognitive decline issues, and your brain looks like it's some, you know, someone who's 20 or 30 years younger in terms of structural density of these areas of the brain. So that's a very uh, well-documented uh, effect. It works on kids to reduce or eliminate ADHD, works on elders to avoid this cognitive decline issue, However, it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just do it in a few weeks. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the current research shows that about six weeks of meditation makes significantly visible changes in the brain. And all of Lazar's research is looking at people that have, you know, thousands of hours of meditation lifelong compared to folks that don't. And so we don't know how much is required, but it's, it's a practice, not a spot intervention. You know, it's really a lifelong sort of a way to build your brain. Right. In contrast, neurofeedback eliminates these issues in 30 or 40 training sessions. So in 10 or 12 weeks, you no longer have ADHD or other executive uh, issues, and those are largely permanent changes because now you're practicing the new you know, brainwave states. Now, I was going to ask you this in the very beginning, but we got off on another tangent. Uh-huh. When, when you guys use neurofeedback at Peak Brain, are you yeah. using your own software or are you using something like Neurooptimal or Muse? I'm definitely not using either one of those. Okay. Um, uh, I have significant uh, complaints about Neurooptimal for many, many reasons. I won't go into them right now, but I've used it. Um, it's my least favorite commercial package out there. It's also the most expensive. Uh, I, I'm not a fan. Um, and Muse is, uh, um, you know, it's it's a it's a consumer device. None of these consumer devices are, are any use are useful at all for neurofeedback for many reasons. The two biggest reasons are the forehead is never the place you want to train neurofeedback, or almost never. And the other reason is that all these uh, headband devices use dry sensors, 
Dry sensors pick up a lot of EMG, muscle noise. And the way you get rid of muscle noise is by filtering. Now, when you filter, filter signals to get out certain frequencies to eliminate, in this case, noise, you delay with every filtering. You know, the, the more aggressive you filter, the more you delay or smear in time the signal. And what that does is it breaks the learning effect. So right. none of these consumer devices that are headband-driven with dry electrodes are worth considering for neurofeedback. Um, you know, the Muse might be good to tell you if you're in a meditation state or not, but that's, a, that's really where it, uh, it, its utility ends. Um, and so I use other software packages. Um, there's several in the field. Um, I use two sort of preferentially, one called Eager, which is like a $5,000 per seat uh, copy, E-E-G-E-R. Eager, which used to be called NeuroCybernetics, is the um, heavy lifter in the neurofeedback clinical world. There's something like 10,000 practitioners in the world. And um, I would hazard a guess that well over half of them were sort of brought up on using Eager and still use Eager as, its, as the main software tool. Uh, Eager's not the sexiest or uses the most channels on the head, but Eager is the best. Um, it was developed by a guy named Howard Lightstone who used to work for Lockheed Martin building jet fighter operating systems. So when he retired from that and went to do signal processing in the brain, all of his code is incredibly low latency. And that really matters in terms of learning. So um, I use Eager in the, in the clinic quite frequently. We also use software called BioExplorer, which is very low cost, uh, or BioERA, which is also very low cost. And those are sort of two extremes, if you will. You know, one is the high cost, mm -hmm. heavily clinical software. One is low cost, but still very usable. Um, a lot of folks that I send, uh, that, that come to see me, are in Los Angeles and come in you know, three times a week for a few months. But other folks can't. Uh, necessarily spend a few months in my clinic, but still want to work with me. And they come to the office, one of our you know, uh, physical offices, for usually three days, get trained up on the software, the hardware, get some assessments done, and then leave with a copy of BioExplorer and EEG amplifier, and we work with them remotely to manage their training long term. Uh, so you can do this stuff. You, know, you can stick wires to your head and run software. That's not the hard part. The hard part's knowing what you actually want to accomplish, what to do next, right. um, and, and there are no consumer systems out there. And unfortunately, there is no one-size-fits-all approach that works for anything in the brain. You know, the brain is incredibly variable across individuals, and two people with the exact same presentation have very different brains and need different biofeedback approaches usually. And so it's a little tricky to do yourself without lots of trial and error and hunting and pecking. And you, you can do that, but if you're trying to fix a problem or go after some performance gains, you're probably better served hiring someone to help you, you know, really dial in what you want to do uh, for the first few weeks at least. Well, that, was, uh, that answers my next question because since we were on that topic, I was going to ask you, like, how can our listeners, you know, get yeah. some of this stuff? Um, well, I, I'm actually going to be in L.A. Uh, in the next month or two, so I'm going to have to uh, schedule an appointment. We'll come out there. Yeah, and, come on by. We'll do a brain map. We'll, we'll uh, talk about what your brain is. Uh, you we, know, I'm, I'm also doing my own podcast soon. Maybe we can go on my, on my show and talk about your results right. if you want. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, we'll bring our cameraman and we'll film it. Nice. And, yeah, okay. Um, so then uh, we talked a little bit about the, the choline-based neurotropics. Yeah. Um, since, since we're in that realm of natural yep. stuff, we'll ignore the racetams. Sure. Um, you know, you've, you've, written, Although, honestly, I, I gotta stop you, Ryan. Racetams are just, in fact, they're more natural than choline forms at this point. Really? Well, first of all, they're all synthetic. When you get cytocholine or alpha GPC, it's synthetic. It's not derived from eggs. 
It's right. derived from someone's lab, you know? And the same is true for racetams. But Cytocholine is and alpha GPC is a couple steps away from just choline. Right. The racetams are a couple steps away from GABA, the neurotransmitter. So paracetam is one step away from GABA. It's just a, it's almost the neurotransmitter GABA. And citocholine is further away from choline than the racetams are from GABA. So Yes, there, 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 there's nothing that's naturally occurring as a racetam. Right. But cytocholine and alpha GPC are also not naturally occurring, really. Okay. So you know, it's it's they're all chemicals. Right. You know, even if some are naturally derived. Well, so let's talk about L-theanine because yeah. I've seen where you've written about its ability. We we've talked at length and, and on our blog at length about its ability to increase focus especially when paired with caffeine. Uh, there's tons of studies that show that it increases mental alertness. But the thing that I'd never heard before was that it helps with stress response. Yeah. Yeah, it's because it's, it's, it's a GABAergic compound, largely. Um, there's several things that Westerners are exposed to in their diet that are GABAergic. The two most uh, powerful, if you will, the two most common are alcohol and tea. So tea leaves contain L-theanine mm-hmm. because the tea plant makes it, and that sort of calm, smooth, relaxed feeling you get from tea, uh, even caffeinated tea, is from the L-theanine. It's allowing GABA to be released in the brain. Now, now let's back up for a second. GABA is a neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. Most neurotransmitters serve multiple functions. Mm-hmm. Depending on what cell they're in, they might excite or inhibit the next cell down the chain. They can operate in, in both ways. Mm-hmm. But GABA cannot. GABA is the only neurotransmitter that's always inhibitory, mm-hmm. always making cells less likely to fire. And there's another neurotransmitter that's very similar called glutamate that's structurally almost the same. And glutamate's the opposite. Glutamate always makes cells more likely to fire. It's always excitatory. And the brain has a glutamate-GABA balance that's very tightly controlled. If you have too much GABA, you pass out. So I mentioned alcohol earlier, that sort of warm, kind of soft, relaxed when you get <laughs> a glass of alcohol, that's the GABA experience. Right. And guess what happens if you keep drinking alcohol? Right. You pass out. So you have, your GABA goes way up and your glutamate can't keep up with it and you actually pass out. Now, do you pass yeah. out yeah. from elevated GABA or the alcohol in the system? From the GABA, yeah. It's, 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 the, the elevated GABA is from the alcohol. Uh, essentially. And that actually means um, that you can get into trouble long term from drinking. That's one of the ways drinking can cause trouble. If you drink alcohol several times a week, large amounts, after several months of this, your brain stops releasing GABA by itself. It needs the alcohol to do it. And this is that sort of classic old burnt out alcoholic that can't fall asleep without a drink because their brain has forgotten how to make GABA without the alcohol nudge. And, and, and GABA is heavily related to alpha waves. So if you can't make GABA, you can't make alpha. If you can't make alpha, you can't turn your mind off a little bit to calm down or to transition into sleep. And so this is why the shaky alcoholic is poorly slept and can't relax and can't downregulate. It's really this, this uh, erosion of the GABA uh, system to some extent. Okay. Now on the other side, if you suppress your GABA too much and glutamate goes up relative to GABA, you have seizures. So those are the two regulatory extremes, passing out or having a seizure. And if you get overstimulated, you can have seizures or dehydrated or overwound. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so really having a balance of those two is necessary. 
And this sort of gets back into something you asked at the beginning about what other things can we do to maintain performance. Once that foundation of diet, exercise, whatever is in place, the next biggest thing I think you need to do is manage how you handle stress. You know, stress is not necessarily bad. We perform much better with a little bit of stress than we do with no stress. But we perform much worse with high stress than we do with medium stress. So uh, you might be familiar with this concept. There's this inverted U curve mm -hmm. of arousal versus performance. Right. And as arousal or stress goes up, performance improves, 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 plateaus, and then plummets, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And that's the, called the, 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 the Yerkes-Dodgson curve. This is actually only true for complicated performance. This is not true for simple performance. In simple performance, the more stressed you get, the better you can perform. So simple, simple things, this is not true. But in terms of most things we do performance-wise require a lot of complicated skills, resources to be coordinated in real time. And so I would consider most things that humans do uh, and that they care about as complex tasks. And that means you need to figure out where you are in that inverted U of stress versus performance, and you need to architect your stress response, your stress relief, whatever it is, so you're in the middle of that curve. So you're operating with just enough uh, in gerontology, we call this environmental press or the, the, the stress of the environment that makes you actually do something. Um, you need enough of that in your life to keep you engaged and firing, but not so much of it that you're ex depleting your resources and becoming fatigued cognitively. So evaluating where you are and building things into your life to get rid of stress, to manage it um, day to day is really important. I saw something, uh, this quote somebody said, I forget who it was recently, that performance is not about having all of the resources all the time. It's much more about how you recharge when they're depleted. You know, what you do, how you shift gears, how you replenish. And um, th that's, that's key here. So we all, I think, operate a little too far, in many of us anyways, who are high, high performant, into the stress part of the curve. Right. So finding ways to gauge how stressed you are, to gauge where your performance is, and figure out if it's a little better when you're a little bit less burdened and find that sweet spot. That's what I encourage people really to do, to evaluate what stress is for them and what performance is for them and find that sweet spot of the two. That's a really good tip. Uh, do you know who that quote is from? I don't actually. I saw okay. it like on the side of a bus or something, you know. So it was, <laughs> side of a bus. I, you know, it was like for some like sleep, you know, mattress or something. Nice. It wasn't, it, you know, nice. I don't know. Okay, okay. Um, so, Dr. Hill, we're coming up on the end. Tell our listeners uh, where they can find more of you. Certainly. So, you guys are always welcome to look me up on Twitter at, at uh, Andrew Hill PhD. Um, we also have the Peak Brain website is Peak Brain Institute, and we have physical offices in uh, Los Angeles and in St. Louis, and we have technicians doing private work in San Diego, Portland, Oregon, uh, Orange County, and Boston. So we're kind of all over the country and we're, we're building out many more peak brains over the next year. We're trying to become like the Equinox gym of the brain, essentially. Awesome. And really uh, cool. so, you know, we're, we're, we're still in the first couple of years of the company, but the goal is to be in 50 to 100 cities in a couple of years. So um, if folks are interested in working with us, come to L.A., come to St. Louis and spend some time doing intensives uh, and go back home with gear or, you know, uh, let me know that you really want a peak brain in your city and perhaps we can make it happen. So. That's awesome. Uh, final question. Yeah. Your top three tips to live optimal. My top three tips are get your sleep 
under control. And what I mean by this is get up at the same time every morning. That's the number one sleep hack you can do is to make your rising time, your waking time consistent seven days a week. And I think that's important to, for that time to be within an hour of dawn. No, no later than one hour after dawn. You want to get some dawn light in your face most days in the first part of the day to reset your circadian rhythm. So number one, hack your sleep, get up at the same time every day. Number two, eliminate all sugar and as much starch as possible. I encourage folks to never have more than 20 grams of, of, of carbohydrates at any one sitting. Less than that, if you're relatively active, might, uh, probably means you aren't spiking your blood sugar. Uh, and the other thing is, the other big tip is that don't be satisfied if your brain isn't doing what you want it to do. If you're anxious or ADHD, you're having seizures, migraines, you're depressed, don't be satisfied with that. The brain is the most changeable organ we have. Its whole damn job is to be plastic and change, maximize gain, minimize pain, learn, you know, treat you to good things and avoid bad things. So if you do have performance limits, don't consider them fixed. Don't believe your depression, your anxiety, your sleep issues, your migraines, your seizures. Don't think of them as just something you got to deal with. Change them. There's all kinds of things you can do to actively change your brain. Shift happens. So get yours. Awesome. Dr. Hill, this has been a great podcast. Thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. For our listeners, thank you guys for spending some of your time with us today. Make sure you guys go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the blog post for this with the video, and we'll have tons of links to some of the studies we mentioned, uh, images of some of the Lewy bodies, the amyloid stuff, uh, glycation. We'll have uh, the inverted U-curve uh, for Great. stress and performance. All that stuff will be at naturalstacks.com on the blog post. And, of course, leave us a review. Let us know how much you like the show on iTunes and share the OPP with anyone you know who will benefit from the things that we're talking about and what we're doing here on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Dr. Hill, thanks so much. Have a great day. Great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yep.